1: Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa. My name is Spumela Lezondi and I'm with Amanda Machaka, Sani and Fayele Mwadi. Your top stories. CPJ says press freedom is alarmingly suppressed in the run-up to elections this weekend in Nigeria. Surgeons in South Africa announced that a penis transplant surgery performed in December has been a success. In economics, Ghana's annual producer price inflation slows to 21.8% in February. And in sports, Bafana Bafana coach selects a strong starting lineup against Swaziland. Let's start with your news from Amanda.
2: Good evening. Five people have been killed in the central Libyan city of Sirte in an apparent suicide bombing. Tripoli-based Al-Naba television says the five died near the city's power station. The attack comes after Islamic State militants claimed responsibility for a suicide bombing that killed seven people at an army checkpoint in the Libyan city of Benghazi yesterday. As campaigning reaches a peak for this Saturday's presidential election in Nigeria, residents of the volatile city of Kaduna are making their own preparations, stockpiling food and securing shops and homes for fear of post-poll unrest. Shop owners say lots of people are buying so that they won't need to go out if there is any trouble. Some are leaving Kaduna to return to their home villages until the elections are over. Few have forgotten how the city erupted into ethno-religious violence after the last election in 2011, also between President Goodluck Jonathan and former military ruler Muhammadu Buhari. About 800 people were killed in three days of violence across Kaduna state. Minwali International Lobby Group, the Committee to Protect Journalists, says press freedom is alarmingly suppressed in the run-up to elections expected to take place in Nigeria this weekend. The organization says journalists have been subject to harassment, torture and censorship in their attempts to cover the election build-up. Pitang Kanga, CPJ's West Africa representative, says it has personal accounts of journalists that have been attacked. He elaborates.
3: It so happens that in this run-up to the elections, there has been violence. As a result of this violence, journalists who are the ones bringing out this information and giving it to everyone to know the situation of their country are also at times deliberately targeted and that's a cause for worry because CPJ's position is that if you are a journalist and it is obviously evident that your boss is a boss that is attached to Journalism with the signs of press and Nigeria Union you know, of Journalists boldly written on the vehicle, yet that journalist and his crew of friends are now targeted.
2: The leaders of Ethiopia and Egypt have held talks where they discussed ways to further deepen bilateral ties. Talks between the two leaders come a day after signing a Declaration of Principles in Khartoum in Sudan on Monday, outlining the usage of the disputed Nile waters. This is the first official state visit to Ethiopia by an Egyptian leader in 30 years. The Egyptian president will conclude his three-day visit by addressing the Ethiopian parliament. Ethiopian Prime Minister Haile Mariam de Salen explains the declaration
4: in order to detail this basic principle and foundation we need to have uh, a committee that's working on it and uh, we agreed led by our ministers there will be a committee that uh, will be detailing uh, this uh, declaration of principle uh, provisions that are put for ourselves i think these are uh, the landmark arguments we have made
2: And finally, China is rejecting calls from foreign governments to release five female activists who have spent the last 20 days in detention. The foreign ministry says no one has the right to ask China for the release of the women. They were reportedly planning a public event in Beijing demanding an end to sexual harassment. The United States and the EU have all expressed concern for the women. Channel Africa News.
1: International Lobby Group, the Committee to Protect Journalists, or CPJ, says press freedom is alarmingly suppressed in the run-up to elections expected to take place in Nigeria this weekend. The organisation says journalists have been subjected to harassment, torture and censorship in their attempt to cover the election build-up. Peter Nkanga, CPJ, West Africa's representative, says it has personal accounts of journalists that have been attacked. He elaborates.
3: It so happens that in this run-up to the elections, there has been violence. As a result of these violence, journalists, who are the ones bringing out this information and giving it to everyone to know the situation of their country, are also, at times, deliberately targeted. And that's a cause for worry, because CPJ's position is that if you are a journalist and it is obviously evident that your boss is a boss that is attached to Journalism with the signs of press and Nigeria Union you know, of Journalists boldly written on the vehicle, yet that journalist and his crew of friends are now targeted because they are
5: journalists, it is a risk. Mr Nganga, if you could just please give us an idea of the kind of atrocities that have been playing themselves out on the ground. You in your blog made an example of several journalists having had been beaten while covering rallies. Also, you made an example of a bus that was bombed and five journalists there suffered cuts and bruises. Can you give us more examples of of these kind of incidents?
3: there uh, are incidents that have, uh, have happened, like the one you mentioned, or the one I wrote about the bus. The rally of the presidential candidate, who is the incumbent president, Jonathan. Good luck, Jonathan. Was convoy had just left a rally in Gombe State, northeast Nigeria, and at the point of leaving, about less than five minutes afterwards. Bomb and in the course of that bomb blast, people was pandemonium, people were trying to make sense of what was going on. And the journalists who had gone there to cover the, the rally were just going back to the various newsrooms in the official vehicle of the press union there. When on their route, they met youth who had barricaded and put around top structures so that you can pass freely along the road. Started pelting there with huge rocks, huge stone in the process, damaging the vehicle and injuring others. And the journalists were saying, we are journalists. It was not scared. And, you know, in rallies across, you hear of journalists being harassed or obstructed from taking part in the covering of a particular event. And what's worrisome is that because the media is also attracted a lot of times to politicians, so an opposition can see a journalist from an opposition-supported media and he just becomes a target by virtue of
5: that. Now, Mr. Nkanga, the attacks as well as these bombings have led, according to reports that are going around in Nigeria, the Nigerian Union of Journalists to threaten to boycott coverage in River State. And they've also held a peaceful protest that is on March the 9th, calling on authorities to ensure the safety of journalists. Has there been a response from government about this?
6: Well,
3: that's one of the things I try to highlight in the in the... In the in the piece I wrote, that it is a normal thing for police authorities to come forward and, and assure you that they will get to the root of an issue arrest the perpetrators and make sure justice is seen and heard. These are just assurances that at best are failed, failed assurances. So they have come forward to say this in as many cases that have made media attention. They come forward and say we'll launch an investigation. The question should be asked now is, How many of these investigations have been promised since as far back as even 1986, when very respected Dele was assassinated in Little Bomb yeah, You can have panels of inquiries and investigation committees into issues, but yet nothing concrete in terms of practical solutions.
5: What is your personal take on the situation? How do you see things panning out in between now and March the 28th when the citizens will be heading to the polls?
3: I will tell you how I see it now. The report that has just reached me that two Al Jazeera journalists have been restricted in northeast Nigeria. The has restricted two journalists working for Al Jazeera television have been found lurking like, around where areas military corporations are ongoing in the Northeast have been restricted in their degree. If this can happen, writers and um, correspondent was was brought in for questioning on, on allegations of being a spy according to media reports. Uh, that was recently also. Writers, and then uh, you have this Al Jazeera and you've had cases of the military being being uh, arbitrary and nothing as sanctions comes really upon them. Those are the run-offs to the elections. It be, I guess, as good as mine. If what the local press has been clamouring about for years is not happening to international press, I think it's going to be very, very interesting to watch what happens.
1: Peter Nkanga is West Africa representative of the Committee to Protect Journalists. He was on the line with Selena Dobong. He's in Abuja, Nigeria. Cameroon is educating all of its Muslim clerics to reject extremism and to beware of the dangers of Sharia law. Among guest speakers in conferences in the country that also stress interreligious tolerance is the Democratic Republic of Congo's honorary vice president, Azarias Ruberwa, whose country is still recovering from a conflict that claimed five million lives. Cameroon has been threatened for several years now by the Nigerian terrorist group Boko Haram, which has declared its allegiance to the Islamic State. Channel Africa's Moki Kinzaka.
7: Muslim cleric and member of Cameroon's Islamic Cultural and Development Association, Suleiman Abba, prays for God's guidance at the Yaounde campus of the Protestant University of Central Africa, where Muslim leaders and pastors from all over Cameroon have been assembled to promote interreligious tolerance and shun extremism. Suleiman Abba says they organized the conference with the government of Cameroon to stop supporters of Islamic State ideology from extending their ideas to Cameroon. He says Islamic State ideology basically centers on promoting terrorism, violence and intolerance.
8: Islam is uh, against terrorism and Islam is against Boko Haram. Cameroonian Muslims have to defend their country which has been uh, attacked by the terrorists, and secondly, fight the instrumentalization of Islam. We have uh, some people who use Islam uh, to reach uh, their own interests. Islam is peace, and every Muslim in the world should be an ambassador of this peace.
7: Cameroonian Muslims traditionally receive funding to construct Islamic schools, mosques and health centers from mosques in Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, but now, students from the central african nation and cleric are being granted scholarships to study in arab nations suleiman abba adds since the nigerian terrorist group boko Haram declared its allegiance to the islamic state they have got information the group is extending its beliefs to cameroon and some mosques are being asked to implement sharia law which is one of the objectives of Boko Haram. Sharia
8: law is defined as the law from Allah.
7: That law has uh,
6: the
8: penal and the civil aspect. Today, when they are talking about Sharia, they just see the penal aspect. Sharia means, for instance, praying, fasting during the month of Ramadan. So, we should not follow these terrorists who want to make us know that Sharia is just punitive. We have also a civil aspect. We should take it into consideration.
7: But not every Muslim agrees. Modibo Mustafa Issa, a cleric in Marwa, on Cameroon's northern border with Nigeria, stronghold of Boko Haram, says Allah's message in the Holy Quran should never be compromised for whatever reason. According to him, it was even wrong to invite Christians he described
9: as unbelievers to discuss with Muslims. Et c'est pour cela qu'Allah jel waala lorsqu'il a parlé de ceux qui n'utilisent pas leurs sens pour comprendre et pour regarder ce qu'Allah waala veut, il les a à quoi? He says in the holy Quran, Allah
7: calls those who do not use their intelligence to know what He wants beasts. He says such people have eyes but do not see, have hearts but do not understand anything, and have ears but do not hear, and will never be accepted by Allah.
9: The conference brought together
7: both Christians and Muslims to teach them to promote interreligious tolerance and shun extremism. Reverend Pastor Libong Liliken of the Protestant Church says Cameroon more than ever before needs to preach tolerance to avoid interreligious conflicts. Uh, you know people have different views. The normal thing is to accept. But the abnormal will be the non-acceptance of people uh, really acting in good ethics. What I teach is being committed to God and being active in the social life. It is possible you can have example of people uh, really uh, being true believers and true actors of, in the social scene. When the Nigerian terrorist group began fighting to create an Islamist caliphate in northern Nigeria, the fighting spilled over to Cameroon. Sociologist Dr. Bridget Ndemba of the University of Yaounde One says Islamist state ideology Boko Haram has opted for may have a dangerous spill over into Cameroon. En termes d'idéologie, je voudrais tout simplement dire que l'approche militaire va contribuer à diminuer la violence En réalité, on ne combat pas une idéologie par des armes. Cameroon has always had a history of interreligious tolerance and peaceful coexistence of denominations until the Nigerian violence group began attacking the country as it fought to create an Islamist caliphate. Cameroon arrested dozens of Muslim clerics and their faithful for collaborating with the terrorist group. The group's announcement of its adherence to the Islamic State has sparked fears. The country may come under the influence of extremists. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundi.
1: It's 1716 Central African Time Right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. A new 15-year International Disaster Risk Reduction Plan, the Hyogo Framework for Action Building, the Resilience of Nations and Communities to Disasters, was recently adopted in the city of Sendai in Japan. The blueprint, welcomed at the Third World Conference on Disaster Risk Reduction, aims to significantly decrease death and destruction from earthquakes, extreme weather and other hazards around Around the world, so what has the African continent learned from this conference? We put the question to Devold Vanigerk, director for the South African-based African Centre for Disaster Studies.
9: There has been some successes and, and uh, quite a few challenges. I feel that, in general, the, the framework as it currently stands has been watered down a bit for a number of political reasons. One thing that plays into that is the fact that um, coming this year is also major negotiations around the Sustainable Development Goals as well as um, climate change agenda. And I think this was a pre-runner to those negotiations. Therefore, countries were very cautious of what they wanted included into um, the framework. There's also been some elements left out that was initially in the regional frameworks, elements like conflict and building on local capacities, a major focus linkage to climate change issues, and then also the whole global envi- um, economic system, which are the drivers of, of disasters, these things have somehow been left out. But one needs to understand, I think this has happened in the broader spectrum of um, what is happening later on this year.
10: Now, we know that there was some sort of dissatisfaction around uh, the focus or lack thereof on the African continent and how this continent is dealing with disaster. Um, what was your take on this? And do you also feel like um, there was less of a focus on the African continent at large?
9: What happened in in 2005 was the African contingent had to quickly organize themselves when we drafted the the Yoga framework for action. And I felt that this year um, we didn't learn from that experience. And once again, countries did not have a united voice. Now, um, all the countries are part of the negotiations. So on the one hand, it bothers me quite a lot that our politicians aren't saying the right things and they're Mm -hmm. not standing together. Although our minister, Robin Gordon, did speak on behalf of the group of 77 and China, and he made a very forceful and outright statement on the need for inclusion of Africa in, this, in a bigger agenda. But I think in general, countries need to blame themselves for not taking on um, the issues of Africa.
10: On that note of um, each country you know, taking responsibility for these um, particular issues, when we look at uh, South Africa as a model um, on the continent, what are some of the key areas of concern that we may have in this regard in terms of uh, disaster risk reduction?
9: I think the first thing is a capacity development and an understanding of what disaster risk is. I'm not yeah. convinced that on a sub-national level, from our provinces down to local level, in South Africa, our politicians and many of our sector departments and practitioners are familiar with what is meant by disaster risk reduction. What mm-hmm. we need to understand is our solution to disaster risk is a developmental solution. We need to develop better and we need to make intelligent evidence-based decisions on our development. And where this is not occurring, we are actually fueling disaster risk. We are creating Mm. more vulnerabilities. That, to me, is a major issue. And the inclusion of political will in our local municipalities becomes crucial for success.
10: Now, when you speak about uh, political will, there's a lot of issues, you know, um, uh, not just the uh, disaster uh, risk reduction, but a lot of issues that, um, you know, um, actually bank on uh, this kind of political will. Do you think um, that um, we are moving towards um, a place where we can actually see the, um, enough political will needed to actually be able to tackle these issues head-on?
9: Um, in South Africa, definitely. We've mm-hmm. come such a long way since um, 1998 when we drafted the green paper on disaster management, to where we are today, um, where the implementation has occurred on provincial, on metro and district level. There's a lot of successes that we can cite. There's some really, really good things happening. But our problem is that our politicians have got a very short memory. Mm-hmm. They're in office for five years, then you need to retrain people. Sometimes it's a, it's a foreign concept. If you mm-hmm. now talk to the average person on, on in the ground and you can ask them what is disaster risk reduction, they have no idea. Yeah. So those are the things that must filter through um, other voices. In other words, our development speak need to incorporate disaster reduction. If we build an RDP house, as an example, it yeah. must be built to a certain standard. Otherwise, we are just creating waste at the end of the day. In South Africa, we've made good successes.
1: That is the van Network, Director for the African Centre for Disaster Studies, talking to Zekwon Namiso.
13: Channel Africa
11: Blontaya. This is Lansana Fofana. Reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown.
13: Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon muchema
7: Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzaka. In Yawundi.
14: From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about
12: Africa. <speaking in foreign language>
11: Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi.
12: Join us every day and know
14: what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
1: Surgeons in South Africa have announced that a penis transplant surgery performed in December has been successful. Though not the first attempt in the world at transplanting a donor penis, this is the first time it has been successful. The nine-hour operation was done by surgeons from Stellenbosch University and Cape Town's Tigerberg Hospital. More from Professor Andre van der Merwe, who heads the urology division at the Stellenbosch University's Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences.
15: We're really surprised at the media attention. What it essentially entails is we have in our population young men who lost the penis due to a ritual circumcision that's gone wrong and quite a number of them. And then uh, they're very young and obviously distraught and there's no real... Way, even with plastic surgical flaps that can, that can give them a real penis back? Mm-hmm. So as part of our kidney transplant program, we often harvest kidneys for kidney transplantation. And I thought that, you know, why cannot we try and harvest the penis at the same time when we can, when somebody donates a kidney, if they are willing to, to donate the penis. So this is where it came from, but it took quite a lot of paperwork. And a few years later, we were very, very happy to be able to help one of these young guys like this.
10: Now, when you speak about um, you know uh, getting this transplant done and everything, obviously the first question that comes to mind is when was one expected to have the full function of the penis back? How long does it take? And uh, really, will this penis work forever?
15: <laughs> yes, that's obviously very, very valid questions, and the answer is we didn't want the guy to be sexually active until three months but he was actually at five weeks sexually active which was you know and functionally so so we were very surprised by that and I was scared that he could have a tear in the suture line you know of his penis but thankfully that that didn't happen and I think it is because he's such a young and a fit patient that he recovers so quickly so I mean he can urinate normally standing up again like he did before the event happened to him and then he's got normal erections at the moment and normal sexual function which we're incredibly thankful for the only thing that is not normal as yet is the sensation on the shaft of his penis is not completely recovered yet the sensation is patchy Mm. but we have you know we suited the nerves up they grow about a millimetre per day but there's obviously lots of little branches of nerves that, that's still growing. So I think he will have starchy sensation. But with the sensation, he's already having normal function as it is.
10: Okay. Now, when we speak about I mean, this is obviously a breakthrough. Uh, this has been done before it's been attempted. But yeah. it actually, is the first time that it's been successful. And really, um, we congratulate uh, those surgeons who were able uh, to do this successfully. Now, we know that um, South Africa is one of the countries that are most in need of a penis transplants. And why is this the case, doctor? Is it because? Because there's a lot of, you know, traditional circumcisions that take place that are botched.
15: Yeah, you know, unfortunately it is true You know, it didn't used to be like that As I said in the, in the old days When the traditional circumcisions were done I think it was safer than it is currently Currently, mm. The practice is such that there are people Doing the circumcision or putting themselves forward As circumcisionists Who's not really been trained But they do it for money mm-hmm. And these people are basically breaking down What I believe is a very good culture And something that should be preserved yeah. so, so I think it is people that are not trained to doing it Doing a lot of damage to the individual As well as to the culture Mm.
10: And uh, just before we let you go, Professor, um, are we likely to see more of these uh, transplants being done in the future and are we not worried about a, a form of a stigmatization around this particular procedure?
15: Yes, we've got about nine or so more patients on the waiting list, and now with a very kind media attention we received, a lot more has come forward, which, mm-hmm. which we will evaluate, actually from tomorrow we're seeing our first ones that that's coming through, yeah. and there's a cost involved with this to government, of course there's no cost to the patient in South Africa for this, yeah. and we're doing a cost analysis as we speak really to be fully available in about three months' time, we will present to our CEO and then he will tell us whether we need external funding or whether we need internal funding. But we are going ahead with the project, you know, yeah. which we are very, very thankful for. That
1: is Professor Andre Head of Urology at the Stellenbosch University's Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences, talking to Zekona Miso. It's 1726 Central African Time. A Chinese restaurant has been closed in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, for allegedly adopting a racist policy against black Kenyans and operating without valid licenses and annual tourism fees. The Chinese owner of the establishment has been arrested and is facing a jail term of not less than 18 months if convicted. According to our Nairobi correspondent, Moegi Konyo, there's been a protest and huge outcry against the apparent Chinese racist policy in Kenya with Kenyans calling for the closure of Chinese businesses and the immediate deportation of Chinese expatriates involved in racist and discriminatory tendencies in Kenya.
11: Following the controversial racist saga at the Chinese restaurant here in Nairobi, the government has immediately closed the restaurant and has arrested the Chinese owner for operating the business without valid licenses and failing to pay annual tourism taxes. The owner has also been accused of converting a residential building into a business premises without valid permit. And although the Chinese management of the restaurant has apologized for his racist policy against Black Kenyans, the government and county officials have raided the premises and ordered immediate closure of the restaurant. But earlier in the day, the hotel management had issued a statement apologizing for its racist and discriminatory tendencies against Black Kenyans' claiming the action was caused by several robbery incidences. And since it was established in Nairobi, the restaurant does not admit Africans after 17 hours, claiming that Black Kenyans oppose a security risk to its white clients, mainly Chinese nationals. When we visited the restaurant early in the morning, the management declined to speak to the media, but fortunately I managed to interview a former employee of the Chinese restaurant Africans have been turned away as from the time I came here.
4: The the clients who normally come may maybe 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 two PM are normally stopped not to enter in the in the restaurant. But you see when Chinese people when Chinese, uh, Chinese people enter in the restaurants, they normally allowed to enter these they normally mistreat the Africans, which is not fair other people other people are being chased to go out of the of the restaurants and and to us and, and to workers. okay, I used to work here in something which which I, I, have, been, I have went through you, you you will feel pity to a customer a customer. Eh? A, a customer. Maybe, maybe they have uh, they have come. Uh, they, maybe they have come to uh, to enjoy themselves. But at 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 the end, at the end, it's sorrow. So, so these people should change. Actually, they should change.
9: And
11: the management of the Chinese restaurant is not only accused of racist discrimination against black Kenyans. But it's also accused of exploiting its African employees.
4: I've been working here for four years, you see, and my NSSF and NHIF, they've been deducting it monthly, but it does not reflect in my account.
11: And according to Nairobi lawyer Cyrus Inda, the restaurant should be closed immediately for violating the constitution.
4: Our constitution is very clear. We have Article 10 on the national values, on human dignity. Secondly, we have Article 20 that binds all people, including private entities, to respect and uphold and promote human rights. Secondly, we have Article 27 on non-discrimination. The state which is obliged to uphold the rights of all people should at the minimum cancel the license of these people, if it is true. Because if they don't, they'll be acquiescing themselves with this discrimination.
11: And following the apparent racist policy of the Chinese restaurant here in Nairobi, there has been bitter reactions and outcry from a large section of kenyans who are calling for permanent closure of the restaurant and immediate deportation of all chinese expatriates accused of discrimination tendencies in kenya
0: it raises you know certain questions about you know other nationals and the kind of businesses that they run within the country it's unjust you know to uh, discriminate on the basis of race or uh, you know, or colour or ethnicity. And what we have seen, you know, with the story of the Chinese restaurant, you know, speaks of all that. That you're being discriminated on on the basis of, of your colour. That Africans cannot be trusted. The insecurity. You know, and I think at some point they even said we don't know whether they are terrorists al Shabaab, you know, and they, they go back to an experience where they had you know, we don't know how true that is, that, you know, they were they actually had Africans and they were robbed. You know, and we have allowed them to operate businesses in Kenya. It takes us back to the dark days of, you know, colonialism, you know, and what used to happen. It reminds me of South Africa and apartheid, you know, of restaurants or places that could not be frequented, you know, by, by, by Africans. I think it is, you know, completely unjust for, you know, that kind of discrimination to be happening in this DNA.
11: Currently, Kenya has a large number of Chinese businesses, manual laborers and experts in the building infrastructure. They are involved in the construction of the new East African and the Great Lakes Railway Line from Mombasa to Kigali, Rwanda. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwai Konyo in Nairobi. 1732
1: Central African Time, here is Amanda Machaka.
2: Thank you, Spomelele. Good evening. Five people have been killed in the central Libyan city of Sirte in an apparent suicide bombing. Tripoli-based Al-Nabad Television says the five died near the city's power station. As campaigning reaches a peak for this Saturday's presidential election in Nigeria, residents of the volatile city of Kaduna are making their own preparations, stockpiling food and securing shops and homes for fear of post-poll unrest. And China is rejecting calls from foreign governments to release five female activists who have spent the last 20 days in detention. Those are news headlines.
14: This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silosi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
1: The Nigerian-based Tony Elemulu Foundation has announced the selection of the first 1,000 African entrepreneurs for its entrepreneurship program, TEP. Teep is a $100 million initiative to discover and support 10,000 African entrepreneurs over the next decade, with a target of creating 1 million new jobs and $10 billion in additional revenues in the process. Over 20,000 African entrepreneurs from 52 countries have applied to the program, representing the creativity and potential on display across the continent. More from the program's director of entrepreneurship, Barmider Vir.
16: In terms of the program itself, to just very quickly summarize, it, it's a $100 million investment by Mr. Tony Elamalu through his philanthropic arm called the Tony Elamalu Foundation. He himself is an entrepreneur, a very successful entrepreneur, a businessman, a philanthropist, and an investor. With wealth comes responsibility, and he's choosing to exercise that responsibility, or the management, of his wealth and responsibility to supporting and growing African entrepreneurs. His challenge to me as the director of the program when I you know, joined in April last year was that he would like to see 10,000 entrepreneurs grow through this program over the next 10 years as a result of the $100 million investment. He further gave me two more challenges, which is that these 10,000 entrepreneurs should create at least 1 million new jobs across Africa, across sectors, and that they should contribute at least $10 billion to the African economy. And through those two you know, outcomes or outputs to make, obviously, a social impact, the biggest social impact that we can make this program is to enable entrepreneurs to create jobs, to create employment opportunities, yeah? Mm. And to provide the much needed solutions to real problems and challenges across Africa. So the 2015 program is the first of the 10-year program.
5: And in terms of the qualities that these entrepreneurs had to possess for them to be selected for this program, what did they have to have in terms of the judges to consider their applications because around 20,000 applications came through for this program for 2015.
16: I mean, we were overwhelmed by the response. You know how it is. You open a portal and you think, will anybody apply? We announced the program on the 1st of December and raised a little bit of awareness raising through social media. What we found fantastic is Facebook and Twitter is where Africa is completely connected. So we were overwhelmed by firstly that we received so many applications both from men and women across the sectors, across the demographics, and most significantly across Pan-Africa. I mean, with this one idea, we have united the continent around entrepreneurship. But to answer your question, what is it that we were looking for? We're looking to back an idea, yeah? Our campaign theme was your idea can transform Africa. You know and I know we all have amazing ideas, yeah? A lot of us bury those ideas because we're struggling with the day-to-day living. Some of us, you know, take those ideas and see if we can make them fly, So the idea is critical. What we were looking for in the applications was the idea, the transformative idea, an idea that has the potential, you know, to make a difference, not just socially but also commercially, and the feasibility of that idea. We were also looking from the applicants was you know, does this idea have a market opportunity? Is this, is this idea grounded in reality? Has it really identified as a customer out there who's got a particular problem, and my idea can solve that problem? If you look back on MPESA, MPESA was really a response to a customer need, yeah? So at the heart of it is the entrepreneur who is providing a solution to a customer's need, and those customers are the billion people across Africa. And I think the other, you know, the other is really looking at whether some of these ideas can be scalable and transportable and replicable from one community to one city to one country to cross borders, Pan-Africa and, of course, have the ambition to scale and grow beyond Africa as well.
5: And when we talk about demographics in terms of the candidates that have been selected for this year's program, the age are they young people? are they old people? Is it a mix? Is there more females than males? Please tell us about the mix or rather the makeup of the candidates that have been selected for this program.
16: Sure, you know Africa is, is a young population. yeah, if you look at China, it's an aging population, India is a young population, the median age. Across Africa is 20. And inevitably, you know, a large chunk of our applicants came from, and we were tracking them on a weekly basis, on a literally a daily basis as the applications were being submitted. So the demographic band of 20 to 30 is the biggest. 30 to 40 is also the second largest. And then 40 plus is the third largest. And then there were, you know, some applicants from the ages um, 50 plus as well. So the largest is in terms of the numbers came from, the, and it is really young Africa that is speaking through young Africans with amazing ideas, you know, and who are rooted and grounded in the African reality, who are responding to the challenge that the that Mr Tony Alemany threw up that your idea can transform africa mm-hmm. in terms of gender we were really conscious and we tracked the number of women applications that we were receiving from women and there was a moment in our campaign from the 1st of january to the 1st of march when we closed the portal when we saw that we were not women were not coming to the portal and submitting applications so we developed targeted marketing campaign to really speak to those women we took out ads we really you know looked at you know looked at the creative ways of engaging women and saying to them this program is also for you
1: there is barbinder Veer, director of entrepreneurship for the tony Elumelu entrepreneurship program on the line from lagos in nigeria he was talking to she was talking to channel africa's tuto ngobeni In this week's look at health issues, we focus on ways to prevent and manage TB, a deadly disease which remains one of the world's top health challenges. There's been tremendous progress in recent years, and the world is on track to meet the millennium development goal of reversing the spread of TB. However, experts say this is not enough. The World Health Organization estimates that in 2013, about 9 million people fell ill with TB, while 1.5 million others died. As the international community yesterday marked World TB Day, WHO called for renewed commitments and action in the global fight against the epidemic during Matebula.
12: Over 95% of TB deaths occur in low- and middle-income countries. Drug-resistant tuberculosis, DRTB, is becoming a serious public health concern worldwide. In South Africa, TB, including drug-resistant TB, was determined to be the leading cause of death in 2012. The country is among the top six countries with a high burden after India and China. Outlining the factors contributing to the epidemic is National Health Minister Dr. Arun Well.
17: TB is very high because of gold mines, because South Africa was a prime gold mining area in Africa. And the silica dust in the mine made people vulnerable to TB. But also the advent of HIV and AIDS. HIV and AIDS make people also very vulnerable. If you are HIV positive, your chance of getting TB increases three times. If you have got silicosis from silica dust, your chances increases six times. If you have got both TB and HIV and HIV at the time, your chance of getting TB increases 18 times. But you also know that people who are diabetic are five times more likely to get TB than when they were not. And you are aware that non-communicable diseases like high blood pressure and diabetes are also on the rise in the country. So when you take all these sectors together, they produce this big a pandemic that you are faced with.
12: While the number of TB patients initiated on treatment under the national TB program appears to be decreasing over the last four years, the number of multi-drug resistant TB, MDR-TB cases is escalating. Hence, the country is working hard to strengthen the decentralization of MDR-TB services so that treatment is brought much closer to the people. Elaborating more on this move is Amy Israel, representative of the pharmaceutical company Lili South Africa, which has partnered with the health department.
6: Right now our two
16: provinces of focus are KwaZulu-Natal and Eastern Cape, where there's been the highest number of people affected by MDR-TB. So we work to support the National Department of Health's policy of decentralizing MDR-TB care. Rather than having people go to a few central hospitals away from their home, we help them get treatment and stay on treatment while they stay close to home.
12: Siraj Adams from Metropolitan Health, the largest administrator of medical schemes, explains some of the treatment available for TB and the importance of sticking to the treatment program.
17: So the treatment is available for free through the state program. And it's important to be to be adherent to the, the treatment despite the fact that there are certain challenges, such as obviously the pull burden is quite high. So there are side effects to it. But T B is curable. You know, it's one of those diseases where if you complete the treatment you'll be completely cured of T B. The important part is finishing the course and remaining compliant because if you don't finish the course, you stop it when you feel better, or you stop it because of side effects, and you don't even discuss this with your healthcare worker, you're under risk of developing resistance. And once you develop resistance, the TB treatment becomes even more tedious in terms of full burden, side effects, and it's a lot longer. So you go from a course of, say, six to eight months in normal TB that's still sensitive to resistant TB treatment that's between two years to four years, depending on the severity of the resistance.
12: Adams elaborates more on the BCG vaccine available in South Africa to be administered to newborn babies, one of the most vulnerable groups to TB.
17: The vaccine is part of the government's immunization schedule and um, it does provide protection, however it's not lifelong protection. So there is a recommendation to look at developing a new vaccine that offers lifelong vaccination protection. So at the moment, obviously, you know, it protects children, which are high-risk patients. They are at risk if their parents are infected. So what we generally find is that, you know, if the parents are infected with TB, their children are at high risk of becoming infected with a transmitted disease as well. Obviously, the immune system is still trying to build up, so just received a the vaccine, but obviously... Depending on the type of TV the parent has, the children are also generally susceptible to acquiring it, especially if there's a lot of people living in one small household. Then overcrowding can also contribute towards children or patients with immune-compromised systems to be infected as well.
12: The right knowledge on symptoms to look out for can help people get early diagnosis and get treatment, as Adams explains.
17: So the main symptoms are night sweats um, associated with prolonged cough for more than two weeks, weight loss. And if it's really severe, then they would be bad in the, in the sputum as well when you cough up. So it's important to treat it early because early detection and early treatment result in better outcomes. I think it also prevents it from being spread. So the sooner you start treatment, the less contagious you are to your contacts and your family around, your colleagues at work. So it's important that the sooner you start treatment, the sooner your infection rate drops as well.
1: The Report by Jane Matebula. It's time for your Economic News with Wisani Matebula.
18: Thanks, Sipumelele. South African President Jacob Zuma has urged aspirant black industrialists to show vigour and determination in their pursuit to change the demographics of the ownership of the country's economy. Zuma was speaking at the inaugural Black Industrialist Indaba, currently underway in Midrand, north of Johannesburg. The Trade and Industry Department launched the Black Industrialist Initiative in August last year. President Zuma says the two-day gathering should not be reduced to a mere talk shop. Future
11: generations must refer back to this indaba when they talk about scores of factories and manufacturing plants that are owned by black entrepreneurs.
18: Meanwhile, South African Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa says senior ESCOM managers have been deployed from the power utilities headquarters in Johannesburg to its various power stations is told the National Council of Provinces that they want the manager to gain practical experience in dealing with the problems the company is facing. Ramaphosa says this is an indication of the seriousness in which a government regards the energy generation crisis in the country.
7: Even if you have to go and sleep at the door of the power station, I want you to do that because we want energy provision in our country to be resolved. And the fact that they've been deployed to the power stations should be demonstration of the seriousness with which we are taking this task. And I'd like to assure all South Africans that we are addressing this problem. It is quite a complex problem, and it is not yesterday's problem, it emanates from our past.
18: Uh, still in South Africa, Enterprises Minister Lynn Brown has indicated her support for the majority of uh, Power Utility ESCOM board members who are said to be on the verge of ousting Chairperson Zola Tzolzi. This follows reports that the board will meet later this afternoon to pass a vote of no confidence in Tsutsi, who announced the suspension of several ESCOM executives last week including CEO Tsiti Somatona. Brown, speaking in Parliament, has expressed confidence in the board.
0: If on a board of 30, 12 work together and one doesn't, don't you go with the majority? Don't you support the majority? Because that means 12 of them are working together. But also, it's a new board. So you really have to build the relationships between board members over time. But I, I've actually been quite impressed with the board. I think that some of the issues have struck us too quickly. And, um, but, but generally, I think this board will see us through.
18: Ghana's annual producer price inflation slowed to 21.8% in February from a revised 23.6% year-on-year the month before, driven by declining prices of gold and refined petroleum. The figure, which is high compared to the average inflation in the region, is an indication of fiscal challenges facing the West African country. Ghana has reached an agreement with the International Monetary Fund for a $940 million aid package to stabilise an economy dogged by deficits and widening debts. And Kenya's ARM Cement posted a pre-tax profit of $22 million for 2014, inching up 1% from the previous year. The cement maker, which also has operations in Tanzania, said its revenue for the period edged down 3%, mainly because there was no additional capacity expansion during the period. In a statement, the firm predicted that this year will be better with growth in turnover and in profit. Staying in Kenya, their main share index broke a three-day losing streak to close higher while the shilling was steady. Oil marketer Ken Kobel was among the gainers on the boards after reporting that its 2014 pre-tax profit more than doubled to $17 million. The fuel retailer's share price ended the session at 7.5% higher. The Nairobi Securities Exchange's main nsc 20 share index rose by 20 points or half a percentage point to close at 5,275 points. And that's how it's looking.
1: And for you, Lenin, what is in studio with your sports news?
14: In our sports update this hour kicking off with football news. Bafana Bafana coach Ephraim Sheikh Mashaba has kept his word and selected a strong starting lineup against Swaziland. That's a game tonight in the international friendly match that will take place at the Somoto Stadium in Babani. Kaiser Chiefs number one goalkeeper Ido will play for the first time for the national team since last year's Chan Tournament. There are four debutants in tonight's game, Tabelo Muren Daniel Cardoso, goal Alexander and Tabo Munyamani. The overseas-based trio of Tulan Sirero, Kamuhalo Mukocho, and Ayada Patosi will also start. Mashaba promised on Monday that he would not underestimate Swaziland.
7: Uh, let us start uh, being champions in our region. So it gives us a chance to test amongst ourselves. Swaziland came in as the, as the first option to say let's take them and then we see what can they do for us. Maybe they'll help us here and there. we help them here and there. The second one, of course, sometimes it is not a good thing. Get people who says, yeah, we'll come and they don't bring you the best team. It doesn't make any difference because when we play these games, we want people who will bring their strongest team. And mind you, we're going to put up our best team against Swaziland. We're not going to put up a a weaker team because we're playing Swaziland. We're going to give Swaziland the respect that they deserve.
14: In tennis news, South Africa's national junior tennis team is back home after competing at the African Junior Championships, which ended in Tunisia. South Africa received the gold medal in the boys' under-16 category after second seed Richard Tongwana defeated fellow South African Joshua Howard Tripp. The eighth seed of the houting is 6-3, 6 love in the final. Team head coach Terry Schweitzer says it was a mixed bag of results for Team South Africa.
16: Our boys under-16s really came to the fore um, with Richard Tongana winning um, the event um, and playing against Josh Howard Tripp in the finals, and particularly good because of being on clay. <clears throat> Our players are hardcore specialists. And then um, the girls under-16s, they were very disappointed, and we would really hoped to get a top-four place uh, positioning for them. And um, in, the, in the warm-up tournament, they'd actually come through and lost in the quarters in the AJCs against players who they uh, could have beaten. Um, They had tough three-setters, both of the the twins, and um, the the, the conditions were very tricky, um, being very windy, which does always level the playing field.
14: That's the Sport News this hour.
0: This is Africa Digest.
1: And let's look at of stories. CPJ says press freedom is alarmingly suppressed in the run-up to elections this weekend in Nigeria. Surgeons in South Africa announced that a penis transplant surgery performed in December has been successful. In economics, Ghana's annual producer price inflation slows to 21.8% in February. And in sports, Bafana Bafana coach selects a strong starting lineup against Swaziland. And that's it for Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Mulele Zondi, producer Luyanda Mawome, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team, thanks for listening. For comments, send us emails. We're on info at channelafrica.org, info at channelafrica.org, or sms is plus 27823325905. Taking us to the top of the hour is Chabalala by Semping Soweto.
19: mother's side a family made from songs passed down to children that have grown to be elders of my pride i speak the language of the people of the first kind diluted into words that spit like gunfire fire, bubble box shot at the time upon the time when war on the world was as normal as but fly try to be part of them from the start a long way from Pondoland I share my only thoughts that linger in my mind so I'm not colorblind when I teach color tribes there is only black or white installed in the minds faster than emergency flies come right past left and sharp past dead you might catch your feet tap to tap into
6: my brain
13: Mone nomse kunomukuti mfandi kuchinyanja service ya Channel Africa. Mukutimva pa 9625 kHz mu 31 MHz band mu shortwave. Mungatimvenso pa www.channelafrica.co.za. Ndipo tikulutsira munzinda wa Johannesburg, South Africa. Tieni tikare remote.
11: Zochi tika mu Africa.
13: Itola ndikusimbangani, mopanda manta, mosa kondera, mopanda chibuibu, komanso mosa kuruwika, Ndife makutu ndi maso wa Afrika. Tiambe di mitu yanghani. Report la UNICEF leone Tsapoeira. Kudia malaywe ambili, pameni analiana, anazunzidwa mungira zosiana. Ntulangani uochuka kwa ambili, kwa Angola, akuzengedwa mulandu, wakuna mizira akuru asrikari, kudi anaba malu amala wa diamond, kupa anthu ambili mbili. Bwalu za mirandu la Nigeria, undu unduuna wazajitetezo, Kudumiza asrikari kumaru oponyera vote masanko a president. Ii ni mitu ya ngani. Toba nungani mwatanatakane di Daniel Banda.
15: Zosati.